Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. At a time when people are talking about the value of art, especially whether or not art is a political statement, it's a good time to talk to Linton Kwesi Johnson, because Linton will tell you he always wanted his poetry to be a cultural weapon. I'll explain. For, for decades now, Linton, who is this incredible, legendary Jamaican poet, has been writing about and chronicling and speaking up for the British Black experience in these poems and stories that have reached outside that community, outside the UK, and into the rest of the world. If you haven't heard them before, they're powerful, uncompromising political poems, and they're often blended with reggae. Now tell me something, Mr. Government man, tell me something. How long you really feel you could keep we under heel when the truth don't reveal about how you grab and steal, about how you make your crooked deal, make your crooked deal, eh? So here's what you need to know. Linton grew up in the 1950s in rural Jamaica, but in the early 60s moved to London in England. He talks about the culture shock of moving there, about experiencing racism for the first time when he arrives, about how unmooring that was for him. And then he'll tell you he joined the Black Panthers, and it was there he decides to express his activism through poetry. And after receiving awards and critical acclaim along the way, influencing generations of poets and activists, Linton is considered to be one of, if not the pioneer of dub poetry and reggae poetry. Next year marks the 50th anniversary of his first poetry collection. This year, he's published a selection of his prose from the 70s to the 2020s. It's called Time Come. Linton really is one of the modern era's truly great poets. So it was a real honor to get the chance to talk to him about his life and words and poetry and music. Why, when protests were erupting in the streets, did he turn to poetry? Can poetry actually make a difference in the world? And why does he call poetry a jealous lover? Here's my conversation with Linton Quasi Johnson. Linton, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Have you have you you visited and and performed and done gigs in in Canada, right? Yeah, uh, when I used to tour the United States back in the eighties, um, maybe possibly in the early nineties, we always played Toronto and Vancouver, and. Um, in Toronto, the first gig we did, I mean, the place was so packed. There was perspiration coming off the walls. <laughs> it was a place called Dougie's Hideaway. What do you remember about those gigs by playing in Canada? They were great gigs. I always enjoyed the Canadian um, bit of our North American tours. Great audiences. People saying this. People saying that about the youth of today. All them carrying on away and it's not funny. You were um, you were born in, in Jamaica, and from the time you were seven, you lived with your grandmother in in the remote countryside there. And mm-hmm. you've said you were steeped in Jamaica's oral tradition. Can you tell me about that? 
Well, like most kids growing up in rural Jamaica, you get socialized into the folk culture. You you know, you get you learn about um Burra Nancy, the Spider Man, who's a bit of a trickster. You learn, you you hear doppy stories or ghost stories um that gave you nightmares when you went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, your your grandparents or the older people would often talk to you in riddles. Uh, you became familiar with um, old time sayings, aphorisms, and and that sort of thing, proverbs. Um, you learned all the folk songs. What kind of songs? What what songs did you learn? Well, songs like songs associated with with games that children played. Um, like you would sit in a ring and pass a stone between your hands and you had to move your hand very fast, otherwise you get hurt. Um go down a manual road, gallam boy, figo broke rock stone, gallam boy, broke them one by one, gallam boy, broke them two by two, mm. That kind of thing, you know. So does all this like being being um steeped in the sort of vernacular culture of of your home you know the stories and and the songs and the and the expressions and all and all that stuff does that start you out with like a relationship with with language with words Well yes that's what I that's what I I began with you know I had no grounding in poetry as such um you know we learned poetry in schools in Jamaica kind of parrot fashion much of the stuff from the old colonial curriculum. When I came to England, um, you know, much of the poetry that we did in school didn't really grab me. Um, So so when I came to poetry, what I I began with is what I had brought with me, which was my grounding in Jamaica's oral culture. Brothers and sisters rocking, a dread beat pulsing fire. Burning chocolate power and darkness creeping night. Black veiled night. What do you remember about coming to to London? I mean, you you were you were living in pretty rural Jamaica. You know, there wasn't running water, not a lot of electricity, and you and you come to London, which is you know one of the biggest cities in the world, especially then in the in the early sixties. What what was that like? Well, at first it was a little bit strange. It was nothing like I had imagined. You know, it literally had images in your head of, of of the streets of London paved with gold, sort of thing, um, horse-drawn carriages and kings and queens and princes. <laughs> it was a bit of a rude awakening when you saw the when you saw the grey brick houses and the smoke coming out of the chimneys and this kind of thing. And you thought, well, back in those days, London was very grey and dull and bleak. It took a bit of getting used to. How was it like socially? Well, at school, I made friends pretty quickly. So um, on that level, it was okay. But on the playground, things were a bit different. You'd be racially abused. You you could you could feel the hostility of certain teachers towards you. You'd go on a bus, and and people wouldn't want you to sit beside them, and. Uh, this kind of thing. Yes, the violence of the oppressor running wild. Then picking up with you, Deficus. How will prophesy a black, a black, a black conquest? And the national. 
How did you end up joining the Black Panthers? Well, we had this, the, the, the leader of the Black Panther in Brixton was an, an amazing woman from Trinidad named Althea Jones Laquant. And she, we had a debate in society in the sixth form, and she came and spoke to us. I can't even remember what the topic was. And I was so impressed. I, I, I went to one of their meetings, and I became hooked by the things that were being said. We've complained to the police about the police, and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates, and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges, and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. And it was a time when I was, of, it was a time when my consciousness was just about beginning to um, awake. Uh, and I, like the youths of my generation, many of us were influenced by what was happening in the United States of America with the Black Power Movement. And I felt that I want to know more about this this thing, you know, called Black Power. You know, you couldn't just become a member of the Black Panthers. You had to join the Youth League. And uh, part of our jobs was to take the newspaper of the organization to all the local markets um, on a Saturday afternoon to sell them, attend meetings, uh, political education meetings where we would study books like Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins. Uh, I, for the first time, I came across books written by Black authors, you know, Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin. It was the beginning of my, my political education. I was beginning to learn something about Black people, about our history and our culture. And that was only available to me through the Panthers. It sounds to me like you were able to learn about Black history. It sounds to me like you were able to learn about class. And given what you, you told me about some of the books you were reading, it also sounds like that's where you started to, to learn about poetry. Yeah, well, I came across a book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And it was one of the most moving piece of literature literature I've I'd ever read. And it, although it was prose, it was very poetic prose. And um, it, it offered very moving portraits of, of the life of Black Americans in the post-emancipation period at the turn of the 20th century. And that stirred something within me, you know, that made me want to write. And that's how it all began. But like, how, how does help me understand that better? How does how does reading that? A lot of people would read that and be moved by the story. A lot of people would would read that and I don't know, close the book and put it back on the shelf. A lot of people would read that and be um, would, would go d deeper into into activism. But you read that and you think, I want to, I don't, I want to write poetry. I want to, I want to write things that make people feel the same way. Am I onto something there? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It stirred something within within me. It it, it made it. it I, I suddenly had this felt this need to articulate um, the experiences of my generation growing up in England in in a racially hostile environment. Madness, madness, 
Madness tight on the heads of the rebels The bitterness erupts like a hot blast Did you know how you wanted your poetry to read, to sound? Not at all. Um, at first, uh, at first, the only poetry that I'd actually been immersed in and actually liked was the poetry of the Old Testament. Ah. <laughs> um, the Psalms. The, the Psalms, of, yeah, right, know, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Psalms of Solomon and stuff. I wish I had to read to my literate grandmother <laughs> right. uh, as a kid in Jamaica. So when I began to write, you know, there was a lot of thee and thou and thy kind of stuff. And um, I I struggled to try and, and and find a voice, you know. And it was was quite a while before I began to understand what poetry was, that it was more than just self-expression, that there was an art to it, that, you know. Um, it was a, a craft of language. And, and mostly the stuff, I, most of the stuff I read in the early days were African-American poets, mm. you know. I really like Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. You know, we real cool, we play pool. I can't remember um, the rest of it. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk light, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz gin, we die soon. Did it feel like a big decision to write poems in your in your vernacular in the in your in the way you talked it seemed the logical thing to do and i was i went down that road after listening to the to the last poets um african-american poets who was writing in in the in the african-american vernacular selfish desires are burning like fires among those who hoard to go as they continue to keep the people asleep and the truth from being told. A racist and I was listening to the reggae DJs from Jamaica. Stand up fussing and fighting. Why not just get together and live in one love and one identity, you know? Rebel in the morning, rebel in the morning. Um, or not singers, but uh, not quite talkers, but uh, people who were uh, intoning their spontaneous lyricism um, to a to a German based track, uh, so that led me in the direction I wanted to go. I mean, I, I became aware of jazz poetry, blues poetry. I thought to myself, "Well, I'm Jamaican. Why don't I write reggae poetry?" I want to play you a clip on that, Lenton. I found mm -hmm. this from the early '90s, and you were doing a show in Toronto. And um, a music journalist, her name is Denise Donlin, and she asked you about dub poetry. I want to take a listen to this. I didn't know this, but you actually coined the phrase dub poetry, didn't you? I coined the, the phrase dub poetry, but I was really talking about the reggae DJs. Uh, I, I myself don't refer to myself as a dub poet. Oh, really? No. So what do you refer to yourself as? A poet who's uh, working in the reggae tradition, so I mean... If you have to put a, put a label on it, I suppose you could call it reggae poetry in the sense that you have jazz poetry, you know, blues poetry, but at the end of the day, it's just poetry, you know, oral poetry. 
That's former Much Music VJ Denise Donlin speaking to my guest Linton Crazy Johnson back in the early 90s. Linton, very similar to what you just told me then. Well, you know, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> I haven't changed much over the years. Does that still feel accurate to you that you're not a you're not a dub poet? Maybe the closest thing someone can call you is a reggae poet, but you're really just a poet. Yeah, I'm a Caribbean poet. You know, I locate my work within a Caribbean tradition of both the written and the spoken word. We'll be right back. I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We're the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. One of the pieces that um, brought you greater renown was a, a piece called Sonny's Letter. I want to play a little bit of that to you. Mama, make I tell you what I'm doing to Jim. Mama, make I tell you what them do to him. Them thump him in him belly and he turn to jelly. Them lick him on him back and him rib get pop. Them lick him on him head but it tough like lead. Them kick him in him seed and it started to bleed. Mama, I just couldn't stand up there and do nothing. So me juke one in him eye and him started to cry. Me thump one in him mouth and him started That's my guest Linton Kwesi Johnson with his work, Sonny's Letter. This is a, a poem and song about police brutality and, and corruption. It was it was based on, my understanding is it was based on your own experiences with, with the police. Linton, as much as you're comfortable with, um, c- can you tell me a little bit about what happened back in, in 72? 1972, yeah. November 1972. Um, I was walking through Brixton Market and I saw um, plainclothes guys, policemen, one of them um, holding this black guy in a stranglehold. And guy looked like he had difficulty breathing. Anyway, I decided to make some notes uh, about what was going on. And I went to the guy and asked him, what's your name and address? And he gave me his name and address because often... People would be arrested and and um, locked up without their relatives knowing anything about their situation, where they were, or what had happened to them. This is part of my training in the Black Panther movement, and so I, I began to write down the number of the, the uniformed police officers, as well as the, the 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 license number of the Black Mariah and the other police cars that were there. And um, next thing I knew. Four policemen grabbed me, two two holding my arms, two holding my legs, and they threw me into the Black Mariah van. And I realized that other people were in there. Um, Apart from the guy who was in the stranglehold, there were a couple of girls in there as well. And um, they started, you know, it's pitch black inside there. They had torches and they, they were shining the torches on us and kicking us and beating us. 
I, they took me down to the station. Mm. And uh, I was charged with two counts of assault and one count of actual bodily harm <laughs> after being a, after me being the one who was assaulted, you know. Mm. And um, thankfully, um, when the case, my case came up in court, um, there were a couple of black people on the jury and uh, I was acquitted. How does that lead you to write the poem from the perspective of Sonny writing to his mother? Well, well, you know, that was a generalized, Sonny's letters it was, it was a kind of a compressing of a lot of black youths, young black people's experience of um, being framed by the police and being brutalized. So I was able to draw a little bit from my own personal experience, but you know, it was not it was not just what I had experienced, but all the stories you'd heard and all the anecdotes from people who, who had been victims because it was a wide it was widespread. I mean, a, a significant section of an entire generation of black youth were criminalized by by the judicial system through racist police officers, many of whom were able to gain promotion by the number of black youths they sent to jail. Mama, more policemen come down and beat me to the ground. Them charge Jim Fissus. Them charge me for murder. Mama, don't fret. Don't get the press and don't ask it. Be of good courage till I hear from you. I remain your son, Sonny. So why a poem? Like, I hope you I hope you can take that with the with the spirit that I'm I'm asking it. Why, why a poem? Is a, is a poem more than just a way for you to express yourself personally and interpret the world around you personally? It was my way. It was my way of capturing that experience and commenting on what we were all experiencing. Was there a hope that the is there is there a hope in you? You know what I'm trying to ask is this idea of like poetry as a cultural weapon. Is 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 this idea that the poem, in addition to being something you can capture, can actually do something as well? Well, do something insofar as um, you're spreading the word. Um, and you're you're letting other people know what what we're experiencing, what young black people are experiencing in Britain. It's a way to spread the word. It's a way to get the it's a way to get the news out in both sort of factually and emotionally. Absolutely, we had to tell our own story. Who's going to tell our story? I mean, if somebody else tells your story, it's not going to be your story, is it? <laughs> Music of blood, black, reared pain, rooted that gear. All ten stopped in the bubble and the bounce and the leap and the weight drop. It is the beat of the heart. What's your relationship with poetry and writing now? Well, I don't write much these days. I, I do a lot of reading. I go back to all the old, old stuff that I like, that I love, you know. Um, in my in the new edition of my selected poems, there's just a couple of new poems. I try to capture a moment during the, the, the COVID epidemic, pandemic. Trudging up and down round my local park, 
enjoying my daily medicinal walk, taking in the scenes and the sounds. Me I try my best to steer far from the heavy breathing jugger who find two meter too far. But before that, I hadn't written anything for a long, long time. Why not? Too many distractions. The poetry is like a jealous lover and who wants your attention all the time, you know. And I was never that kind of a poet. Poetry for me was never a vocation. It was something I did when I felt the need to do it. Um, I became too busy doing other things, you know. Do you think you're ever going to write another poem? Oh, I guess there must be at least one one more poem in me. <laughs> I hope one more anyway. It's been a it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I was walking down the road the other day when I hear a little youth man say him say. You know, see me situation. Me don't have no accommodation. That is Linton Crazy Johnson with Wanfi Go Rave. Before that, you heard my conversation with the great Caribbean poet and writer Linton Crazy Johnson. His latest book, Time Come, a collection of selected prose from his life in writing, is out now. The other conversation we have up is with the artist Dakalik Duffy, who, who will tell you she spent the first part of her life uh, trying to get as quickly as she can get out of Nunavut and her adult life as an artist trying to get back. You'll hear her conversation with Saroja Coelho. Go check that out where we got this podcast. We'll see you soon, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.